Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Candace Creaseman Mowry, and this is Beyond Therapy. It only takes us coming together, making just one life better than we found the flame. Welcome back, everyone. This is episode two of Beyond Therapy. And today we're going to be talking about counseling caregivers from culturally diverse backgrounds. So I saw this really interesting statistic from the Family Caregiver Alliance from 2016. It said that annually approximately 34.2 million Americans provide unpaid assistance with activities of daily living and or medical tasks to older adults. So that's only older adults. That doesn't even include folks who might have a disability um, who are not older, Um, and that more than three quarters of caregivers are women. So basically, if you're a mental health provider, you're either already or will work with clients who are in caregiving roles. So to help us understand the unique challenges facing caregivers of color, um, I'm delighted to be to join today by Dr. Marie Huggins. Welcome. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you for having me. Um, I appreciate it. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. So I'll tell you a little bit about Dr. Marie Huggins. Um, her pronouns are she, her, hers. She's a licensed clinical mental health counselor associate in North Carolina and holds a PhD in counselor education and supervision from the University of North Carolina at Charlotte, as well as a master's of education in counselor education and supervision with a concentration in college counseling and student development in higher education. She also has a BA in applied psychology and Africana studies minor from North Carolina State University. She holds the credentials of National Certified Counselor and Global Career Development Facilitator, and she's currently working as an outpatient therapist at Creaseman Counseling, serving clients in Durham and surrounding areas in North Carolina. So she's legit, y'all. Yeah, (laughs) I appreciate it. Yes, yes. Excited to be here. Yeah. Awesome. Well, let's jump in. Um, I, I like to just sort of define our topic because even though caregiving yeah. may seem kind of obvious in terms of what it might entail, I'm wondering if you can start by describing the role of caregivers and identifying yeah. what sorts of activities or tasks might fall under that umbrella. Yeah, sure. So, you know, the term caregiver, it's used like a lot of different ways. Um, I think the formal way we've probably heard it is they're just simply who t- someone who tends or cares for Someone who maybe has, you know, specific needs, whether that be short term or long term, it could be due to illness, injury, disability, or just some life changes, life transition. So that's it in short. And I should distinguish too that within caregiving, we want to clarify family caregivers. So within that, yeah. So within those unpaid roles, oftentimes that is by way of someone who is a member of that family. So kin. And also I should say too, within family caregiving. It could also be, you know, family of choice. So, you know, it may be the family in which you identify with. It could be members of your like church family, so your congregation. It could be community members, so neighbors. Um, and it also could be friends. So it goes further, a little bit deeper within that too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. So that is really a a broad spectrum of relationships, of tasks. Um, I also Mm -hmm. am noticing something that I didn't really think about, which is like short-term caregiving versus long-term caregiving. Someone's recovering from an injury or illness versus has an acquired disability. Mm -hmm. That's a very different set of circumstances. No, you're right. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. So the statistic that I mentioned earlier, three quarters of caregivers are women, Mm 34.2 million Americans. Yeah. Um, I'm, my guess is that that number is low given that it is pre COVID. Yeah. I can only (laughs) imagine how that number has exploded. Yeah. It has exploded. Yeah. So I'm curious as we're thinking about cultural identities, Mm -hmm. who is doing the caregiving? Yeah. So caregiving is falling a lot on middle-aged women. Um, I should mention that within that, oftentimes they're at the peak of their earning power. They're oftentimes employed. They're the most within the workforce, and oftentimes the most educated. So within that too, they're oftentimes providing the most care for any of their elder or disabled relatives. 
And I should clarify too, with like also what care looks like to cycle back. So it could be things like transportation, medical conditions, like um, monitoring medical conditions, medication, the, you know, the daily living stuff with like getting dressed, showering, all those things. So on top of oftentimes if they're working, it's a second layer of work that comes in place with this caregiving. Um, predominantly right now, even some recent stats, we are seeing a rise in caregiving with those within the ethnic diverse population. So just as some percentages within some of the reading that's provided, um, you know, 19.7 is within Asian Americans right now, 20.3 within African Americans, and 21.1 with those of Latino descent, with only 16.9 being that those are white. So we can see within those numbers who the predominance is, and it oftentimes is because of chronic pain, health conditions, um, the care, there's already some issues going on with those groups. So the rise for them, they're now living longer for the, some of them, but within it, they may have some health ailments. So it's something to keep in mind, but mainly women. There really is a predominance of women um, caregiving. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. so interesting. And that that tracks with my experience of clients who have been in caregiving roles when you mention it's largely middle-aged women. And I appreciate how you mm-hmm. kind of define some of the aspects of their phases of life. Mm -hmm. They're at the height of their earning power. They're Mm -hmm. professionally involved. They're socially engaged. They're busy folks. Um, And I'm thinking about one client in particular who was a middle-aged woman. Um, Mm -hmm. She had an adult daughter at home who had a mental illness. And then she was also caring for her elderly parents. Um, so I wonder if, if you have experience with that, I've heard it called the sandwich generation, folks who are kind of giving Mm -hmm. care in multiple directions. What does that look like? Yeah. Yeah. So I think that kind of highlights those intergenerational households, right? So it's, you know, you have your, your immediate family there, her mother and father. So their needs are looking different in terms of how care is relayed. There's power differentials within the home. So I think too, depending on culture, respect tenants, the way in which they'd like things done. On top of the generational concerns of her providing care for her own, you know, child within that, so I think it's a complex approach. But I think too, just checking in with role strain is something that I think comes up a lot within that. So, you know, while you are finding time for yourself within that, but the diverse type of care, the type of energy that you expend within those various forms of care, and just a cultural sensitivity to the that woman providing that care within that. So. It is multifaceted. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit more about role strain. What does that look Mm -hmm. like? Yeah, I think within that too is, you know, the idea of kind of thinking that, oh, I can provide and do all of these things. I think too, I get within that a little deeper from the interview, but more so the complex of like the superwoman, you know, within black culture too, that I can do everything that comes within other ethnicities as well. It's kind of the matriarch of the family, right? So, you know, I highlight with different realms, women's roles look very different. And I think within that, the expectations of what's wants from the family and then the real, realistic approach of what the woman physically can do. So oftentimes role strain within culture, the cultural lens can be a really push and pull because I'm trying to honor things for myself, but if it's a departure from the culture, it could be a point of contention. I definitely want to circle back to that because there's yeah this idea of that I feel like I encounter of trying to figure out what is values based engagement in caregiving yeah. versus what is guilt based engagement in yes. caregiving, and not that those are mutually exclusive. Um, but yeah. I'm curious, how do you work with that with someone? How do you identify it? Is it even a problem? Where do you go from there? Yeah, I think checking with the client to see kind of where they fall within that. So it's more so like while you may be holding on to these tenets within your culture, because it's a source of maybe familiarity or you want to honor that side, really asking them the question, you know, how much of this is serving you or detracting you in your wellness? What about these things that you could hold on to that are going to take steps forward? And what can we kind of let go of or maybe shelve for a bit? And you can incorporate some more for your own. So I think really kind of parsing through what we can hold on to and again, what we can leave behind is a good language to have within that because we're still validating and honoring what they may be wanting to hold on to or identifying with, but also being realistic in terms, is it really serving them? So, yeah. That seems like such a delicate balance and especially 
coming from a very individualistic sort of narrative and culture, it's so hard for me to feel out when I am prioritizing individual wellness over family wellness or community wellness. And I guess it it makes perfect sense what you're saying, which is to just, you know, consultation to the client, what, what's important to you and how can you best express that? Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you're talking about uh, some of the, the tenets and I I love that language. So Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm curious about what are some of the cultural narratives around caregiving for women of color? Yeah. So within the literature, it kind of breaks. There's one article, I think it was so helpful. Um, And I think too, it kind of brought down the different cultural groups and within it, I'll just kind of highlight some in brief, but, you know, starting with, you know, Asian American culture, just as in general, in a general sense, some of those cultural, socio-cultural expectations or within that too, the idea of sacrificing for the family, oftentimes immigrant culture was, was within that. So also like some strained interpersonal dynamics with maintaining, you know, connections outside of the family and within that to the expectations of family, they may not align. So that like you just said, the independence and what you do for your family is number one. The pride and shame with asking for help is something that's come up within a lot of Asian American culture. Um, I think with another culture I'm looking at too is Native American culture. One that's also not highlighted, I think within caregiving, but I think the expectation to provide care with many limited resources, right? So it's just the idea of like, this is a communal, it can be complex in terms of the who's within it and who's doing what. And so I think that's a big concern. Um, And I think too, there's a lot of, again, intergeneral intergenerational complexities within that. Um, and that could be like tribe specific, it could be faith specific. So it's, it's hard to navigate within that. Um, and I think too, let's see within Latino, we have the concept of that family reciprocity, that familyismo, and excuse me, I pronounced that wrong, with decision-making, it's kind of, I got to run it by my family. You're also dealing with some complexities dealing with machismo. And so it's, even though the woman may be the one providing the care, within that she may not have the final say. So the burden of doing all the work within that and then essentially being told no by, you know, if there's a head of the household or something like that. So some issues with like the role strain and gender, there's a power differential, um, acculturation processes, you know, um, language can be a huge barrier. Um, and I think too, with an African-American community, we know with women, there's obviously the the idea of, like I mentioned before, some of the, the super women type of taking on loads, um, and then also to like being a pillar, so matriarch energy within that as well, kind of the one that's being turned to, and then I think too just again more role strain. So that's just in brief, and the reading does a, a good job of expanding even more so. But those are some of the challenges of women that I've noted in literature. You're mentioning the um, the article that we we read ahead of time. So the Apisoa Varano and colleagues article, um, which was, yes, so enlightening in terms of the cultural narratives. It, what stood out to me, I think, I mean, there were so many great points in there, but what stood out to me was there's just, there's so much push-pull. Even just the, when pride and shame show up in the same narrative, you know, and the the urge to be a superwoman, the need for assistance. Um, so just really so much dichotomy in in that role, which I imagine contributes to the role strain. It does, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Some of the themes that they mentioned um, for African-American women were family values, expressing mm-hmm. love, respect, spirituality through caregiving, maintaining family stability. And one of the standouts, I think, that differentiated the African-American women's narratives in this work from other groups was racism. So can you say more about how racism and discrimination impact caregiving for African-American women? Yeah, of course. So yeah, so, you know, they, they're great to highlight that because it's worth noting. And also even further than that, we want to talk about the historical context of this, right? So within the history of America, 
you know, within that African-Americans then at that point being forced into labor within the U.S. And so within that, you know, the history of that being torn apart from their families and oftentimes the enslaved having to care for their slave master's children. So there's a tainted history in terms of the care role of black women nursing children, not their own. So really being stripped of their identity and being pushed upon into this right, this type of forced labor, slavery. So that's the early part I think we should look at in terms of, you know, obviously caregiving, right? So it's being forced upon them. On top of that, now we're fast forwarding. We know all about throughout that history, the systemic racism issues, right? So knowing within that there's an underlying belief that there is a system that is perpetuating, you know, inequities that are going to lend to inferior healthcare and other services for black people. And then within that, there's the ongoing, you know, like history within that we all know with healthcare providers, um, and I think to the distrust, the mistrust, excuse me. So all that woven in really paints a picture of now we need care, but we have racism and discriminations and a longstanding history where we made some headway, but there's still so much work to be done. So yeah, it's definitely a concern. It seems like that history might translate into situations where, one, you've got a a whole population of people who are more predisposed to physical ailments as a function of exposure to racism, who, when they seek out care from medical professionals, are far less likely to receive the care they need or to be taken seriously in their complaints. So then that generates the mistrust. So I hear how many barriers there are for caregivers to get assistance. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 really it's it's unfortunate. And I think to being all that being said, it you would think with this amount of like awareness, you know, that there'd be and there are some, you know, progressive movements or ways to kind of move in within that, but still it's it's something that's somewhat fragile to talk about. I feel like it's it's kind of a known thing, but people are uncomfortable talking about it because it's, it is unfortunate. And it's so critical. I'm, I'm thinking about how my approach a lot of times when I'm working with someone who is either a caregiver or who has a, dis- a physical disability themselves, you, my rehab counseling background is very much let's find supports and, you know, assistance for your particular presentation So that might mean, have you tried talking to a physical therapist? What about OT? Have you called a home health aide? How accessible, both practically and emotionally, does that feel to someone who has experienced medical and ongoing racism? Yeah, not very accessible. Not very accessible. Got it. (laughs) Right. Yeah, I think so. I think, yeah, and that's... Yeah, it's worth noting. I think knowing that those resources are out there is one thing, but then the confidence in navigating within those systems is something I'll talk more on a bit as, you know, more so like applied ways to assist um, those in front of us who are going to embark on that. So yeah, there's definitely ways for us as clinicians to to be of aid to caregivers or... So you have really graciously agreed to share a little bit about your own experience as a caregiver to various family members. So how did you find yourself in that role? Yeah. So it was in February of 2020. I literally was about to click send in on my IRB for my dissertation. I had just wrapped it up. I was living my life. Um, I just proposed it. And so I was moving on to the next steps. At that time, I lived with my partner, who's now my husband, and we were just living life as normal, winding down our time in Charlotte. So that phone call I received, it was from my family member, my grandmother, um, just stating that my father was in intensive care unit and things were not looking good. Um, He had um, a traumatic brain injury, a subdermal hematoma. And within that time, we just knew that he was being airlifted. So fast forward through all of that, it was the end of his stay. So by this time, we're in the the start or mid-March of 2020. So when I know they say that time, people know what that means. It is the start of the global pandemic you know, finding care, advocating for services um, with him as he got ready to discharge was a complete mess, <laughs> I should note. So I have a another wild card in place. So knowing that, I'd move forward with making the decision as his eldest next of kin to provide care. Um, so that was a big decision to make, but with the limits in services and 
you know, barriers in place with facilities no longer accepting new clients or pushing out clients. Um, it was something I did. So I did that for seven months um, while still pursuing my PhD with my partner in Charlotte. Um, yeah, so within that too, I just was met with so many different challenges you can imagine. Um, I had a, a breeze in training from the rehab facility by a manual in tow. Um, I just felt like too, it was just a lot. We're two 30 something year olds trying to navigate care for a 60 year old man with many different health ailments. Um, the family um, limitations in their ability to assist limitation and funding but within that too, um, I think to just being resourceful was um, like something I developed quickly and advocating. So yeah, in brief, that was that was what happened. So mm-hmm. wow, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Was it a hard decision to step into that role? It was a hard decision um, because for me, um, saying yes to it meant that I could commit to it. And I think knowing and understanding what caregiving looks like and early on hearing things that he may not be able to know who I am or speak to me or walk early on was a big undertaking. And I think one, I think nurse kind of told me, she's like, I've seen you know, miracles happen. She was just giving me hope. And I think irregardless of what was going to happen, just knowing that I could keep holding on to hope was a great coping mechanism for me. But yeah, it was mm-hmm. a huge decision to make. You mentioned as you were taking all of this in that your dad has this traumatic brain injury that pretty much all of his capacities were sort of on the line. Ability to walk, ability to speak. What happens for you next in terms of trying to prepare yourself for how you would be the person to help? Yeah, I think for me, just kind of doing a check-in with figuring out, you know, where I was at in the time, you know, could I be emotionally and mentally available? And for how long I could realistically do that, enlisting family, trying to work to create a plan for care in the midst of the pandemic, what that would look like with him seeing his healthcare providers. So for me, it was more so the logistics of it in terms of funding, what insurance could help with really not feeling like, okay, I'm just taking this on blindly. What can I kind of get in place now to kind of hold us over for if it's maybe for some five or six months, for some, it could be a year, for some, it could just be a month, but just having systems in place, if any, to provide some support. That was my next go-to and just gauging that with myself, you know, were there times when I would lean in on my sister? And I did, you know, we had rotations down in terms of care for him, breaks down if and when she could come. And my, my mother assisted um, his ex-wife, you know, my partner, their family. So we really like really crafting a net of support helped us get through that time. I hear how effectively you use supports and I also hear you being command central of figuring out how those supports were going to fit together. How did that impact you? I'm I'm connecting just with the cognitive load of that. I mean, what did that look like for you to be holding that much information? I think for me, it felt at times like oftentimes there's a lot of like inertia. Like I felt just I ran into it because it was my father. But there were times when you're right, the mental load of it became a lot. And I kind of was like, hey, I don't have the answers. Like I need a break. Marie's off the grid. And then I would, you know, toss the responsibility or share it, I should say, with others who could step in. So that was key for me because there were times, especially, especially early on when hope was dwindling. And I did feel like this was too much. And, you know, as he recovered and would get better, it would kind of, in a way, gave me a little kickback, like to kind of step back in. It's always healing. And, you know, this is kicking, this is working. So I think it was kind of like, yeah, it was a lot of moving parts, but having the support too, when I was just mentally exhausted, headquarters while flattering, making sure that others were on board too. So yeah, just because I couldn't carry it all. It sounds like you were also really adept at knowing your limits in terms of asking for help, but maybe before you were totally burnt out. Is that something as we maybe kind of shift our gaze a little bit here? 
Is that something that you see other caregivers doing well, struggling with? What do boundaries look like for caregivers? Yeah. So they can be really wavering. I think sometimes, like you said, I see some that are doing it really well. And I think oftentimes too, if they're kind of at that breaking point or they had a path reference point was like enough was enough. I pull from that time of being spent going forward, really being firm with boundaries and communicating them well as to their family or others is one thing. But often those struggles, some of the youngest within their families, um, they may feel some struggles, bearing some of the eldest, it varies. But I think too, with those really struggling, it's the guilt. It really starts to kick in for them. And oftentimes they feel like martyrs for the cause and they don't want to ask for help because they feel as though they really can do it all. And I think, too, promises made to family, whatever the case may be, it's really working to rewrite that narrative for them, that this is them not reneging on their, you know, what they've said they do. It's just a change in the journey. And oftentimes, if that can elicit a break or them to catch their breath, they're at least open to talking more about it. Because, you know, working off that energy being low, it's, you know, they can feel and see that it it's being harder for them. It's, it's more challenging. So yeah, it varies. It sounds like it might be reasonable to expect that folks who are maybe thrust into a caregiving role all of a sudden, or with very serious conditions that they're dealing with, or maybe very intimidating tasks that they are, are given that there would be a sort of fight or flight response, which really lends itself to that all or nothing kind of thinking, right? That I'm either caregiving or I'm failing. Right. Yes. The dichotomy of that is real. Yes, it is. And Mm -hmm. I think too, just knowing that you can live in the in-between of that, right? So there'll be great days. And I think there's one of the readings that presents a great chart of kind of the trajectory of care as it relates to just early onset of caregiving, the development of the you know, client or patient of care, what that looks like for them, even as far as if they could pass, what that looks like for the caregiver. So I think too, just knowing that there will be great days, there'll be challenging times, but you know, they can, they coexist. It doesn't really have to be times where you're just hitting all the marks as a caregiver because it's fairly unrealistic. We should talk about the, you know, who you're caring for. They don't have all great days. They're not the perfect person to care for at times. So as we give them that leeway and understanding, it's something that also needs to be had for the caregiver. When you mentioned caregivers having bad days that, um, or the folks they're caring for having bad days, that brings to mind having to, or deciding, however it might be framed, being a caregiver for someone that you have a really contentious relationship with, or maybe even an abuse history with. Can you speak to the dynamics of that, what that can look like? Yeah. So, you know, I've seen it in different clientele. I think oftentimes it's the contention, the, you know, clients who maybe identify as queer and dealing with a parent who is not supportive of that identity um, or a client who has estrangement from their, their family. I identify with that in terms of reconnecting within the care and having that vulnerability. It can be the time to kind of heal wounds, but it also can be really, really delicate, fragile, and just uncomfortable. So I think too, checking in with oneself and figuring out what boundaries even look like within that, you know, like how to navigate those, that, those things that you've yet to unpack. So within that, if, and when you are embarking on it, I highly recommend some type of support via counseling to kind of work through those kinks because the strain of caregiving is real. And so on top of that, with unspoken tensions or known contentions, it's good to make sure that there's a space of process for the caregiver. I'm also reflecting on how how much room it sounds like you have for these extremes of emotion, of experience, and it sounds like you have a very gentle kind of accepting approach to helping people find the middle, find the gray area. That feels like that might just be you in a nutshell, but does, does any of that, how much of that kind of predates your caregiving and how much of that do you think you cultivated through caregiving? I think it predates it a bit. I think for me, um, with different walks and life experiences, just like anecdotally, and then just through my clinical work and, you know, as a person, 
just allowing for that in between that type of like acceptance and and also room for growth and change. I think seeing my father's recovery also lend itself to really transformative growth and change from him. Um, And I think being open to that experience, this was something that I wouldn't have had, hadn't I not taken on that role. And I think too, just giving people grace within this time. And I think the same for those within caregiving, you know, it's a time of healing and it could be physical healing, but also a lot of time for emotional wellness healing, just overall, just being nurturing in that environment to have that come if and when obviously the patient of care is open, but I think too, it can really be just like transformative and eye-opening. So I think, yeah, I would say that's something about me that I, I welcome and I try to incorporate. So yeah. Mm-hmm. It seems like it would be really important to help clients also name their expectations. So particularly as you're describing situations where there's a problematic or dysfunctional relationship between the caregiver and the person needing care, if there's this unspoken hope that through this caregiving, we will repair this relationship, how often does that show up in your work with folks? Is either the hope that works out or the hope that that doesn't actually come to fruition? It's very common. I think with the act of caregiving, there's a big hope with this selfless act that somehow or another whether it be a parent or a sibling or whoever it is that they're caring for, will round that corner to be accepting and to heal, to mend that dynamic. And oftentimes too, really being realistic with clients in session, you know, what has the history looked like? You know, how have things been as of recently? If we can't have this picturesque view of what you're seeking, what's something within that that is more realistic and feasible if and when, and also parsing with, if they don't, the acceptance of that. And knowing what their works are done within that is still important. It's still meaningful, even if it is not being reciprocated. I think it just depends on where the client is at in terms of what they're seeking and realistically. So I think really working to unpack, again, fantasies or kind of the ideas, if I do this, I'll be in their good graces or any type of beliefs that they have and being real with them and noting that it may or may not happen. And oftentimes it may not even be contingent really on them but more so it's coming from the client of care. So, yeah. I'm hearing this really broad range of acuity maybe is the right word in terms of some folks may be in survival mode as caregivers and needing distress tolerance skills. Some folks may be in this more intellectual philosophical space of uh, figuring out their role, figuring out their values How do you assess what a person who is caregiving needs in counseling? Yeah, I think checking in, it's kind of looking at kind of like a Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? right? So like you said, those in survival mode where it's really resource-based, you know, is this someone who's having issues with caregiving due to transportation, actual physical care, you know, financial, what are they needing on a like logistic standpoint, like resource-based for some that are more, you know, comfortable, you know, you know, feeling like they have more, whether it be through insurance or just family donations or care. I see them leaning more towards, like you said, talking a little bit more on the philosophy, you know, philosophizing and just kind of thinking deeper, that kind of existential stuff of what is caregiving, the thinking of caregiving, all of that, the feeling of caregiving. But it's not to say that those who are needing those resources don't still need space for that. Because I think there's a way that you can teeter between both to check in on things in terms of how they're feeling, thinking, behaving in caregiving, and also checking in to supply resources. And if not having them yourself, being to refer out. Yeah. So I think you can strike a chord with both. Yeah. That feels so important. That resonates so much with, I feel like a misstep I will commonly make is if I see someone is struggling with resources then my mind gets totally hung up on the resources. And then when they go in an existential direction, I'm caught off guard or it's like, mm, <laughs> we can't know, but, but your lights, we have to keep those on, you know, which probably sounds really condescending. So I think that's such an important um, range to allow within the session. 
Yeah. And I definitely know that obviously you meant well by that. I think it's just saying, wait a minute, what you don't have to make make me feel better. I do things wrong all the time. (laughs) (laughs) I I, that's that's fine too, but I, I do see where you're coming from though. And I think too, it being need based and there is a role for that. So, but yeah, like it's, I totally feel you on that. So yeah. <laughs> a question that keeps showing up, I think it, it relates a little mm-hmm. more to what we were talking about earlier, just in terms of identifying the different tasks of caregiving. It seems like the task could be so far outside of what I know anything about. Yeah. What is the line for someone? I, I mean, because I feel I feel like if someone were to say, I'm going to need you to help your mom um, with her shower and with toileting, you may as well be asking me to do open heart surgery because I have no background. Like, how does that even compute in terms of what feels available versus what feels like someone would obviously outsource if they had the the means? Yeah. So I think too, within, you know, home care or those type of services are definitely available if and when the individual is insured or, you know, looking into that upon coming home, but sometimes they're not readily available until a certain point. So really asking yourself, you know, comfort level, you know, how do I feel with that? Even before it happens, you know, the adult daily living stuff, like, you know, bathing, you know, eating, prayer and mirrors, getting them dressed, you know, it sounds very simple, but the act in itself of doing it, you know, depending on the mood of who you're caring for or just your energy level, it may be something looking into outsourcing if you yourself can't bring yourself to it. And there's nothing wrong with that. I think oftentimes to that, I've got it all. I can do it all. You, it should be so simple. I do that for myself. But keep in mind, oftentimes it's like I've got me and someone else to do every single morning and it can feel like a lot. So in and out, if you're already thinking of it, Parsing through hypotheticals can help one to really think, is this something I'm equipped to do? And if not, what are some care and support resources I can get to assist? So there's nothing wrong with it though. Yeah. I was also thinking about this image of the strong black woman, the matriarch taking taking charge in this care-based way, and also notions of birth order. But I also know that most of what we know about birth order is very white centered. So what in your experience, is is there any overlap between that firstborn and some of the cultural narratives around being the strong caregiver? Yeah. So I think too, access is a big one for, you know, who's able to navigate systems, right? So for me, just speaking personally at that time, you know, I did not have my PhD in tow, but you know, for me opening doors and asking questions for my father, that definitely helped. And, you know, I'll readily admit that that was something that, you know, I was full disclosure about, you know, I'm here and I'm aware of the system and anything I can do to advocate for my father, I did. So I think within the black family, oftentimes, you know, there is a predominance of black women in the community who are, you know, high achieving, who have degrees in tow, who are already navigating predominantly white systems. So I think oftentimes it does fall on them. And also within that, that matriarch energy of kind of being the one that pushes forward using words like resilient, being resourceful. Those are things that we've seen in the black community. So I think too, you know, even aside from birth order, those traits and attributes, you know, oftentimes too, I should note being unmarried, not having children, more flexibility and schedule, those type of statistics and demographics are real. And I think too, knowing that they can forego time to care is a reality. As you were mentioning your status within the family and very openly saying, look, I know how to ask the questions. I know how to be a presence in these appointments. It, it also sounds like though, that since you don't, you know, you weren't going to these appointments holding your degree, that I imagine you accumulated some pretty intense macro microaggressions in the process of trying to orchestrate your dad's care. Did that show up for you? It did. And I think too, the sheer fact that I did have to assert that side of myself or to be, you know, articulate, code switching, you name it, like within those spaces to have to really be not only present, but also talking, you know, asking questions, being engaged, following up, 
be asking for additional resources with an appointment. So really not just showing up like most do, but really doing due diligence, you know, booking neurologist appointments, you name it, just really pushing forward. Oh, no, we're fine. Or seeing concerns in medication, you know, seeing that, okay, are we, we mentioned less, this would change. I'm not seeing that. Just wanted to follow back up on that. So little things you're noting and, oh, well, we got it. Well, can we get a second opinion? So really, you're right. It's kind of, it can feel dismissive. And I think too, you know, you lose steam and you, and I think too, just, but then you're like, okay, why am I invested in this? It's my father keeping that going. Um, but yeah, that's, there's a lot of inequities there. So I did feel that. Well, and speaking of losing steam, just acknowledging how much more steam is needed to be in the role of caregiver and then take on this additional emotional labor load of code switching. I mean, it sounds like a really critical aspect to be aware of when we're working with caregivers of color is how much extra work they're having to do, particularly in medical spaces, to get taken seriously. Exactly. Yeah, it is an extra leg of work. And I think to holding space for that in a way that can feel as though it's a, they're giving them tools to be empowered to navigate within these spaces. And, you know, while it's an extra leg, it, you know, it oftentimes can be the factor where it's like, oh, like they kept it going or they had support in this way to feel like they could keep it going. Um, and we prevent that drop off from happening. So, yeah. Well, maybe we can go in that direction in terms of thinking about the the strategies and ways that we can best help caregivers. I wonder if you can speak to what sorts of tools do you offer specifically to caregivers of color as it relates to being in these white-centered medical spaces? Yeah. Yeah. So I think within those two, I really try to keep in mind, you know, what have been their past experiences just to give me a feel what's been coming up for them. And even posing things before, like if we could go back within that, what are some things you would like to have seen happen or, you know, really honing in on goals within if and when they're going to have to navigate within these systems, what that looks like. So I think too, then we start to create kind of a toolbox, so to speak, of things that help them feel more equipped. So, you know, keeping in mind of who the care providers are, you know, are they those who are culturally competent? Do they advocate for those within that? Are there, is there, you know, visual, visual, like paraphernalia things that speak to lending itself to the needs of diverse or black clientele. So there's a sign that, okay, this is someone who at least has some expertise or familiarity or is willing to learn also within that too starting with a lot of kinship connections, community-based, you know, what's exactly out there? How are other of your peers being serviced? Who are they going to? How is the care that they're receiving? Um, is there word of mouth referrals? Just checking in with just the community in itself. And then also to like more also like faith-based organizations. We know the numbers speak to clergy and, you know, having that within the community as a way of support, even referrals for care-based services, so yeah, that's those are some of the things I like to like comb over and check in with and to help them. And I don't know why that is like blowing my mind, but it is yeah. because I think my as a white woman, you know, that's a big part of it is my urge would be to have this pre-curated list of resources. Here you go. I've done I've done the work for you. You know, feeling some sense of, okay, I've alleviated the burden of searching as if that's the primary thing. But I hear you describing it's so much more important to go with the client toward their trust. Who do you trust? Get their opinion, not mine. Exactly. Right. <laughs> yeah. And I think too, you know, executing the choice within that, there's a freedom within that for them to say, you know what, I do have an option in place. Even within session, you know, bringing back what they found, processing that, you know, how did it, would you, you know, touch base with this? How did that go for you? What did or didn't you like? And then from there, if I have any referrals or options, definitely, you know, providing them if needed. But, you know, I think too, it's, it is case by case, but I think knowing that is helpful and seeing that there is, there are tools out there for them to have within them makes them feel a bit more empowered. So, yeah. Well, let's maybe roll the tape back a little bit to even think about how, how are folks from culturally diverse backgrounds 
accessing counseling or are they accessing counseling? So maybe speaking more specifically to what are some of the barriers to folks getting this particular brand of help? Yeah. So, you know, I'll start with stigma. We know that that in itself within the, you know, the view of actually seeking mental health services so the health seeking behaviors are impacted by that. So the idea that going to counseling is something that is taboo, it's, it's unfamiliar with these groups because in many ways that speaks back to that mistrust. You know, what do I look like sharing the depths of my personal woes with someone that I'm not quite hundred percent on and can't quite trust? What would this mean for my family? What if I say something that's going to get me hospitalized, even if I'm, you know, just the fear, even if it's a matter of depression, um, cost, we know that's a huge factor in terms of, you know, equity, inequities and access for, you know, for those who receive services, time limitations, um, off hours, count clinicians, those who can do evening, maybe those with early mornings, weekend shifts, having that flexibility for clinicians. So if they're seeking it, access to care what I mentioned, but also things like transportation, you know, for those, if it's, am I paying for my bus pass or am I going to head to my counselor? Well, I think I need my bus pass so I can get to work or I'm a little low on groceries. That's now the priority. I need to spend it on that childcare and also to the availability of just, you know, clinicians of color or those with cultural competent views to provide care for them. Um, yeah, so those are big ones. I should also note past traumas within care if they've sought it, if it went left for them, you know, the pathologization of this, like, you know, labeling, putting them in boxes. There's a lot within that that I think too prevents they maybe why they might be turned away. Related to these barriers, uh, again, back to this great Apiso Verano article, um, they also explored some of the counseling interventions that have been tried with culturally diverse caregivers. Um, and what I noticed was that most of the interventions were really focused on the individual, you know, so it's psychoeducational coping skills or God bless CBT. I know. Um, <laughs> yeah. And not shockingly, those interventions didn't do much. They did not. <laughs> yeah. How can counselors, given all these barriers, potential barriers, right? How can counselors take a more ecological approach to working with caregivers? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we hone in on, on systems, right? So I think within that, within the ecological approach of care, realizing that, you know, there's a broad system that which these clientele are under. And I think being awareness of what resources are working for these clients and what's not within the systems approach too, just having that level of sensitivity in terms of the inequities, having open dialogue about these things with the client to gain trust, but also really keeping in mind with all these different diverse groups that we're talking with, that they're all not the same. So even with the general statements that we make, there are those within group differences. So I think too, really hearing that narrative, figuring out what this walk is like for this Native American individual, for this Black individual, whatever that looks like, and so with every caregiver, the unique needs, so on top of the caregiving role, the needs may be differing, but also within the identities that they have, it's differing. And how those come together with the intersections of identity and what that looks like if and when, you know, they are needing counseling or care. So I think you keeping all those things in mind will be helpful. That way it's not so much like, what do you need? But it's like you yourself within the system, roles that you're having, different, you know, all of that, the identities. It really is like so integrated. As you're describing this work of building rapport, you know, that classic, that old chestnut building yeah. rapport. Yes. <laughs> uh, building yes. rapport, building trust, doing, getting a thorough history, having that history be culturally responsive, incorporating a lot of different identities. I feel the, the kind of tug between what sounds like a really protracted kind of assessment and joining phase versus what might be a communicated urgency to fix something. You know, that if someone, if a caregiver is coming in in great distress and is saying, I need help now, uh, how do we 
balance that need to to meet the person where they are in a lot of different levels with what might be the client's sort of let's get this show on the road feeling. Yeah. 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 So I think that, but it's like kind of the more so the concept of mastery and caregiving. And I think too, they do an excellent job of more of a socio-ecological context model, right? So they break it down from, I think it's like, yeah, individual family, community and societal levels. It was the Johnson at all piece. And I think within that, it allows space for the individual, you know, what are the mastery things? What are the resources that you need? What is the, you know, the community providing that, or what is it not providing? How is this impacting you on societal levels? So really honing in on just that of the emotional side of things, but also checking in. So I think for that clinician to be able to hold space for those in segments or within this session, we're going to be focusing on a little bit of resources or breaking up that within the time. But I think there are still ways to hear them out and saying, is it for you that you're needing this resource? Or are you looking for relief? And if so, are you feeling stressors? Just checking in on that because it could be that, well, I thought I needed that, but really I just need to process and get this out there. I do have what I need. Is it that I need help because I'm feeling burned out, but I do have my resources. So you're needing support. So it's, it's interesting, but I really, you know, I think doing a thorough dive in to see, you know, how you could best tend to that immediate need, but also using things like that context model are really helpful. So, yeah. I definitely think those things like that can help. Well, maybe let's dig into the mastery piece because that sounds like that is, is such a, a valuable approach to to balance out getting a history while also understanding where the, the sticky problem areas might be. So tell me a little bit about what mastery looks like in a caregiving role. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's really like it sounds, I think within that too, it's just having a level of confidence and proficiency within the care that you're providing. So I think within that, there's different levels within it for that caregiver. So we start with the individual individual mastery it speaks of. So I think that like the well-being, knowing that your intersections of identity are being met, feeling though you are equipped and competent again to provide care. It goes on deeper with family. It does an excellent job of talking to these kinship dynamics, right? So, you know, seeing what the decision-making process is looking like with these individuals at home, you know, who do I need to run this through? Who are the supports? Who's a non-kinship bond that we need to keep in mind? So it is still very family systems oriented. The community, you know, knowing in which, what resources are out there, counseling services that speak to the needs specifically of caregivers, and then also knowing that, you know, if they're not alone, there is, you know, support, there are workshops, trainings that are available for caregivers in the community, there's systems in place within that. So yeah, those are some of the few, and I think there's last one, kind of the societal levels. And really within that one, we've kind of honed in earlier with the sheer navigating of those systems for that caregiver. So knowing that I've got to go to these appointments, how am I getting there? What am I saying? You know, how do I confident do I feel to be able to really move throughout that as a society base? So it really does an excellent job of honing in on all those things to really give confidence and have that mastery for caregivers. So, yeah. I just love that this notion of mastery as it was communicated in this article is so focused on asking for help when you need it. You know, that mastery is not this individual, I have to figure out how to do everything by myself. It's mastery includes being able to know your limits, find your resources, get help. Yes. Yes, it does. And I think that is so needed in terms of changing the language of caregiving culture. I think when we hear caregiver, it really helps to, again, change that definition. Like you said, asking for help. That's a part of caregiving. It really isn't, you've got it all on you, the burdensome nature of that. I've got a caregiver. No, it's that you can ask for help. That's a part of this now. So yeah, I love that. So maybe circling back to rapport, um, when there is a racial or ethnic difference between the caregiver and the counselor, what are some strategies for building a bridge and building trust and rapport? Is there, I guess, is there anything different about doing that with a caregiver than with any other client? 
I think yes and no. I think, you know, the standard kind of within that too for the clinician, I think, is to have done the work. And I think we all know what that means, right? So checking in with biases and, you know, stereotypes and things like that. So being vulnerable, operating in a space of transparency, um, having trainings that can help with proficiency of care if and when they are providing it. Um, I think too, just checking in with colleagues, kind of some, you know, consult is helpful within that. If and when sitting in front of that client, you know, asking questions, you know, this is a teachable moment for me. You know, I'm learning more about your journey. Statements like that can really allude to, oh, you know, this is seen from, and if I don't know something, I'm going to ask and find out for you. So having that due diligence, I think helps with, um, you know, clinicians of non-color who are able to sit in front of, you know, varied groups. And, uh, and also just a level of genuous, genuineness, I think is so helpful. You know, if you don't know, it's okay. We're not, you know, expertise is helpful, but I think too, just that, you know, with unconditional positive regard, very person-centered way of being, if and when is so helpful. So those are the things that really are great. And I think definitely though, more so a sensitivity to the systems, right? So if you're navigating, you know, knowing that, the way it looks for me may be very different. Broaching that in session, you know, you going through this, what are some things that make you feel more confident given your identities? Something as simple like that, you know, can help to kind of bring that in the space that we can even acknowledge that we're both different. Mm-hmm. It seems too, as you mentioned, staying in a, a humble mindset of saying when you don't know of asking for more background and more information as someone who's also learning, you know, that seems like that could also be such good modeling if someone is feeling like their caregiving role is also an expert role, that they're being relied on to have all the answers and to know what happens next all of the time. Oh, yeah, no, definitely. And I think it kind of takes that away. It's like, okay, I'm already doing that. Like this allows for this to be like, oh, it's I can learn as well. And it all doesn't have to be on me. So I think it helps to take the pressure off of it. So yeah, no, you're modeling. Yeah, it's exactly right. Mm -hmm. Are there any other approaches, whether this is kind of whole theoretical orientations or specific techniques, things that you have found have really been beneficial? to caregivers? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think really checking in where they're at, you know, given the the quality of care that they've been providing, how that process has been going for them, really checking in just to, like, yeah, just a very general sense checking in, but also too, I think it's so important with caregivers to really check in to see in terms of where the patient of care is and how, where they're at. Oftentimes, you know, there's a continuum there where it's more so, well, you know, they're making progress, how that looks for the caregiver. That may mean transferring of care or the end of their caregiving. It also may mean if they're just starting caregiving, what that looks like for the caregiver. If they're at the end of life, you know, are we planning for those stages next? That is so impactful. So really the trajectory in which the caregiver is on with that patient or client of care is so imperative. I think too, you know, it helps really a good gauge for that clinician to know that, okay, yes, they're a part of this and also checking in with other roles. But really that one I've seen is a huge indicator on what type of services I'm going to work to provide. You know, it helps me really pinpoint where they're at. That also seems like such an important distinction from working with non-caregivers, something that I've heard plenty and I tell supervisees plenty is if a client is continuing to focus on someone in their lives, in their sessions, and I may feel the pull to kind of go there with them and say, well, maybe they're depressed or maybe they're narcissistic or whatever, uh, is okay, who's your client, is to stay oriented to that. But what you're describing sounds like for caregivers, it's really imperative to, yes, first check in with the caregiver, but then to also have some sense of, of what kind of care they're needing to give, what sort of emotional ups and downs they may be experiencing as a function of this other person. 
Exactly. Yeah. So, and I do think there's definitely ways to hold space for both. And I think it does so in a way because in, in many times like caregiving can feel like, well, it's like, uh, you know, it's a background job. It kind of, it's also a really good way of validating work for them and, and talking about what they've been doing um, and holding space for that type of work um, because it may feel like they're kind of an unsung hero of it or I'm doing all of this. So I think too, it also gets the conversation going about how their view of self is with caregiving. You know, it could be a point of contention. It could be a badge of honor. It could be something they pick up and put down. It's really good to see also how they see themselves within it. So I think that also you could do even more introspective work with them on that. That brings up something not totally unrelated, uh, but only tangentially related. Um, When you're mentioning sort of the other supports or other people in the caregivers' lives, it made me think of family members that I've known in caregiving roles who their perception at least was that they were very isolated, even if they had geographically very close relatives, you know, who could potentially help, that they were both very isolated in their practical supports and also that no one really recognized the additional labor of being a caregiver. So again, I put heavy emphasis on perception because that certainly can be related to the the baggage or, you know, conditioning that the the person brings. When we're looking at caregivers of color, is that a theme at all of feeling sort of invisible in their work? Yes. Yes, yes, yes. And I think too within that of caregivers of color, you know, early on we talked about, you know, the different narratives within that. So the more so like this is for the family, you know, this is a sacrifice. So on top of those expectations, it is really feeling as though you are, you know, not able to tend to interpersonal relationships, you or your time looks different. So with all that being said, that sacrificing the, you know, the matriarch energy, the feminismo, like all of that within that can be, it's very isolating. Um, I think to kind of questioning the, the doing of that, but then also, like we mentioned, feeling the obligation to do that, to honor family, to respect family, to hear your family, um, you know, the, the communal component of that. So yeah, isolation is a huge one. Um, a lot of like struggles with the like, you know, culturation stuff. It's like, I'm doing this, but I'm also like my peers quite understanding. So yeah, there's a lot that comes up with that. That's a, that's the number one one I think is isolation. Not too far after that is probably burnout. Mm-hmm. When you mentioned the acculturation piece, circling back to most caregivers are middle-aged and there are certain developmental aspects around that. I'm thinking about folks who were in your situation who are not middle-aged, who right. <laughs> then are trying to relate to their peers who have no concept of maybe how much money they have in the bank or how to use their insurance card. What was that like for you personally to see the sort of knowledge and experience gap just widen between you and people your age? It was really, yeah, like isolating. You know, I will say that um, for me, it really showcased like uh, the the gap more so where it was like, they're not, that's not on their radar. Many of my peers, like they're not in that position where they're having to care for a parent. And so really for my own self, just kind of like, tossing back and forth with like the, obviously like why me and like, you know, then going and saying, well, this is me. And so navigating within that. So yeah, there's a huge gap and more so like, it's just not on many young adults radar. You know, we really talk oftentimes about our own wellness and health as we're growing up, going through things like college, even media that we take in, but oftentimes a left out of that equation is talks about what it looks like for our parents and what that is for you as a young adult, if and when that does happen. I think the idea of, you know, their passing is something that is talked more on, but the existence of them, if they have illness or injury, is something we often do not talk about. So I hopefully there's more awareness surrounding that. And I think to more space for young adults to have support within that, if they're embarking on their own life endeavors, you know, I mentioned I was like knee deep in my PhD program. So that was my life trajectory. So 
you know, really realizing like, ooh, like that came at me fast. And so knowing what supports in place for that. So one really equipped even on campus to help with handling these major life transitions for students in higher education is something that I would definitely like think that in the near future would be helpful. That sounds like such an incredible programmatic direction to go. And I can also hear the influence of ableism in the absence of those services. You know, this assumption that the only people who get disabled are 80 years old and up. That's it. As opposed to, nope, anybody, anytime. It could happen. (laughs) Yes, it could. Yeah, there's a wonderful quote, and I'll see if I can try to cycle around to it. But I think it's something around like, you know, if not, you know, in some way we'll be caregivers or we'll for needing to have being caregiving done or something of that nature. But I think too, it hones in on that in many ways of the other, like we will come in contact with that concept. If we're not seeing it, experiencing it or providing it, it is, it will, and if not, we'll come through our own lives. So it's something that I would hope it would gain some more traction. Well, I feel like we have covered so much and have also opened so many doors of things that could be covered. So as we near the end of our time together, how would you say that your ongoing experience as a caregiver has changed you for better or worse? Both. Yeah, I think it's changed me for, yeah, (laughs) I think for me, it's, it's for the better. I think at times I was a little skeptical about doing it or just my road within it. Um, but being now that he's transitioned on to, you know, a different level of care, um, he uses a senior center and, you know, he has family supports around him. He's made a great recovery. Um, I think for me, witnessing that experience, it, it did grow us closer. And I feel like for me, it brought so much more of a reality of, what this looks like. I think too, when I hear that word, obviously it's like, I connect with it. I understand that a level of empathy I couldn't have like ever imagined achieving in my life. Um, and I, I don't regret it. I think that for me, it really did. It's so formative to me as a woman and more so even as a clinician to sit with clientele who are in the depths of it or the end of it. You know, I really, I can relate. And I think too, I'm so much better for it. So me and my partner, my family, it's, it's been a road and, um, I, to provide support to others is, I feel like a part of my mission now. So I really do. Yeah, I do. And I, I think if you asked me before this, like what in the world, but yeah, like being in the trenches of it, like as hard as it was, like the support made the difference. So I can't emphasize that enough. It feels like you're articulating something that I I certainly have found to be true in my own life is that suffering can either open us or it can close us. And I, it sounds like you just really embody the choice to stay open. And I think that's such a great message to send to clinicians who are all humans and are all suffering in their own ways is that your difficulty doesn't have to be a liability to your practice. It can be a beautiful expansion of what you have to offer. Exactly. Exactly. And I think too, within that, you know, you're so well informed within it. It can almost be like testimony, like in the sense of your journey and walk and how much of sharing that. And even if the appropriate amounts of self-disclosure can allow for that relatability. And you're right. You know, the pain of that is a powerful paint. And I think from that, how you used to illustrate it on that next leg is so important. So, yeah. Well, I am so grateful for your time today, and I'm always excited to learn from you. Uh, So I will just send a deep bow of thanks to you for sharing your wisdom. (laughs) Oh, you're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. This is an honor and a pleasure, and I'm so grateful to have had this experience with you. So just thank you so much for your time, too. Beyond Therapy is brought to you by Creaseman Counseling, mental wellness for all. Visit www.creaseman-counseling.com for more information. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.